Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Our first reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahab the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ebihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zodak, Zodak, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliazah, Eliazah, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. <laughs> We also have two short, easier readings <laughs> from uh, Romans chapter 8. Firstly, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And finally, verses 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Martin. Very impressive. Hands up, who wants to join the reading team? No takers, no takers. Well, seriously, come, to, come talk to me afterwards. I might just get you to read a passage like that. Um, as it turns out, I feel like God maybe has something to say to us today. I didn't actually speak to Joe or Chris about what they were, what they were bringing to this service, but I feel like we could unofficially title it Brokenness Sunday. 
given that I know what I'm about to speak about. And so with that in mind, I thought I'd offer you a funny story before we get into it. The other day, I had my, my youngest son, who's two years old. I had him at the back while the other two were doing judo. I took him off to a separate room because he was growing restless, and I thought it would be fun. We got into that room, and he let rip. Yes, he farted. That's, that's, that's slightly funny. You can laugh there, but laugh more in a minute because he looked at me, turned around, looked me in the eye and said, Daddy, that was you. <laughs> He's two. He was dead serious. So recently, I was watching um, Leonard Cohen sing his song, Anthem. And there's this refrain in Anthem that goes like this. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. And that actually made me think of the beginning of Matthew's gospel. I know that you thought I just wanted someone to have to endure reading that list of names. But... Matthew starts his gospel here for a reason. You may have noticed that the list is broken in places. There's this pattern, the father of, the father of, the father of. But it's broken in four places. You may have noticed that there are four women in this list before you get to Mary, of course. And that's actually very unusual. Why? It's far too many for a list like this. Which begs the question, why? Why did Matthew do this? Why did Matthew include these people? Why these names? How did he pick them? Matthew mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, the nameless woman, as well as Mary, Jesus' mother. What is it that unites these women? Well, the first four are likely outsiders. They come from outside of Israel. They're likely not Jewish. But all five have questionable sex lives. I mean, Teenage Mary has a son without having, without having sex. That is the official line that the Bible tells you. That is the very definition of a questionable story. The understanding of biology was not so different back then that this was plausible, although the consequences of getting pregnant outside marriage included stoning. But the first four women arguably fare worse. Tamar dresses up as a prostitute to make her father-in-law get her pregnant. Rahab is a prostitute who lives in Jericho before the walls have fallen. Ruth, the Moabite, turns up under Boaz's cloak in the middle of the night. And Uriah's wife bathes outside naked when it's light in full view of the palace and the king. There's so much going on in these stories, and it's vital to note that the women in them are on the wrong end of power dynamics, which put them in a horrible position from which God manages to work something redemptive, astonishingly, something which we too often forget. They're doing what they have to do to get by, and God somehow meets them in it. And I'm excited that we're going to focus on Ruth's story in the coming weeks to see how grace is at work there. But What I want you to notice today is that Matthew chooses these four names. Matthew chooses these four stories. He could have written an exclusively male genealogy. Luke does. This is an option which is available to him. But he chooses to highlight these stories. He includes four women whose stories are ones of brokenness. Four women who are scandalous outsiders. At the very beginning of his gospel, I mean, 
Who chooses to start the story of Jesus with a list of names? But at the very beginning of his gospel, he shows us, Matthew shows us intentionally that there's a crack in the story of Israel's family. And ultimately, that's how the light gets in. Jesus arrives through this lineage, through this heritage. Jesus is born in these questionable circumstances. And Matthew goes out of his way to highlight some of the sexual violence and outsiderness in his family tree by including these four women's names. This is shocking. Imagine that you're sitting down to write the authorized biography of Jesus. Is this how you start? Why do it then? Why would Matthew do this? Well, I think that Matthew writes his genealogy this way to start already to unpack his theology of grace, to start to tell us already what grace looks like. How does that work? At the beginning of the first story of Jesus that you encounter in the New Testament, in the Bible, there's a list of names that has this repeating pattern which is broken four times. And normally, you would hear this rather than see it with your eyes. And so you would notice that. This is highlighted. This is there on purpose. It stands out, and it stands out in such a way that it tells you what to look for. It tells you what to look for in the rest of the story. It's starting to tell you what you might expect from this story of Jesus. It tells you, what does it tell you? It tells you that grace happens to surprising people in surprising places in surprising ways. They're not the right people. They haven't got the right story. They don't have it all together. They don't have the right background. They don't wear dog collars. Grace happens to surprising people in surprising places in surprising ways. So keep alert, because in Matthew's story about Jesus, you should expect Jesus to go after the ones that you don't think God cares about. You should expect Jesus to be active in the places that God shouldn't go. You should expect Jesus to show up in the things that feel so far from God, it's almost impossible that God could be there. And that is still true. That theology of grace carries through. That's what grace is like. That's why Matthew starts here. That's what it means for Matthew to start here. It's surprising. And honestly, I don't know if we're really ready for that. What do you think? It's so much bigger than this building because I expect God to be here. I'm grateful that he meets me here. But if God's in surprising places, then where are they? Do you expect to meet God there? As as Steve put it, our our non-resident prophet, I guess, in America, he, he wrote to us recently, and Johnny read it out last week. He said, God is taking away those comfortable chairs and moving you outside. God is giving you two options very generous. You can sit on the concrete and mourn your lost comfort, or you can carry his comfort to the people whom he has gathered here in Nottingham. Do you really expect Jesus to be there in the places where God shouldn't be, going after the people God shouldn't care about? 
I also don't know if we're really ready for Jesus to show up in the things that feel far from God because when it gets personal, cracks hurt. Cracks hurt. The crack in everything hurts when it's a crack in you. I'm aware that Baby Loss Awareness Week starts today. And that kind of a loss can be compounded by the silence surrounding the subject, which isolates you just at the traumatic moment when the life you were anticipating is taken away. Statistically, one in five, around one in five pregnancies doesn't end in birth, but this often painful reality can be hidden from view because of the fragility of those early days and because of our reticence to face into grief and death. And if that's your reality, if you're in that position, you are not alone. If you'd like us to stand with you, if there's any way we can stand with you, please come and speak to us. We'd love to support you. So thinking about cracks, I haven't faced that personally, but I think that I have been learning a little bit what it feels like to crack. For the past nearly two years, I haven't been able to swallow properly. So I recently found out that this is due to achalasia, which is a condition in which the muscle where my esophagus joins my stomach doesn't relax to allow food to pass. This is uncomfortable, and I use water to wash it down to get through that. Sometimes that doesn't work and the food and water doesn't pass, and so it comes back, occasionally with enough volume that I can't breathe. And sometimes that happens in public. For example, in a bishop's garden at a garden party, <laughs> and I'm humiliated. And honestly, I've found this so hard. I can't read. Um, <laughs> I know. I know that the people on the platform with the uniform are supposed to believe in God even when it's difficult. But there have been days when I have run away from God because it has been too hard to wrap my head around the idea that he should be able to heal, but I still can't swallow. And I hate watching my kids watch me struggle because I don't think that that's somehow what their father should be. <laughs> surely, surely that person's supposed to be strong. Surely that person's supposed to be able to cope. Surely that person is not supposed to need two pints of water to get through a normal meal. And how do I, the reverend doctor of theology who spent 11 years studying scripture, how do I stand in front of them and then in front of you and tell you that actually I'd rather you not pray because somehow I just don't think God's going to heal this one. Not because I doubt that he can, but because I don't think that he will. If I follow God, isn't it all supposed to work out? Doesn't he work all things together? What does hope look like? Let me read you what I wrote. Where the hell is hope? 
So today, I speak from here, from weakness and not from strength. I don't know how this ends yet. I'm still in the middle of it. I don't know whether it's a miracle or a surgery. And you know what? I'm cracking, breaking, falling apart, all the while knowing that I'm one of the lucky ones because at least this is treatable. I do get that. But cracks hurt. I am not a perfect offering. My body is broken. I have a physical pathology which is interfering with me doing something as basic as eating and drinking. There's this crack in my reality, which it turns out is enough to shake even some of my foundations. Because every one of us, you and I, we work with some picture of God. You actually can't comprehend his full reality. And so you work with a picture, and he's gracious enough to reveal himself in ways that work with you as you are. And what I think I've found in these last few years, couple of months in particular, is that with all my years of studying the Bible and the time I devoted to refining my picture of God, I built this mansion in my mind. It was grand and it was beautiful and it was as close as I could get to the transcendent reality of God. But the problem was I lived in a shack next door built this mansion in my mind, but I was living in a shack next door. How is your mansion? Has it been shaken by war in Ukraine, by the uprising and oppression in Iran, by the cost of living and interest rates and mortgages? How's your mansion? See, when it gets personal, cracks really hurt. It hurts me not to be invincible. It hurts not to have been healed even though I've prayed and other people have prayed and people I've respected have prayed and they've prayed in various ways. And some people I haven't respected have prayed and I haven't appreciated it. It hurts not to stand in front of you with a miracle story and instead to be playing the waiting game with the NHS knowing that I'm on a winding road into a future that I don't want to face with tests and trials and risks explained by surgeons and, no, and every mealtime not being able to eat properly along the way. It hurts to be there and not somewhere better. It hurts to grieve the loss of the mansion I had made in which everything made sense from where I could explain to you how to deal with suffering, how to approach suffering, how to think about the problem of evil. Because that's what they teach you when you're in theological college. And it's good to learn. But many of, many of you, many, many of us, are facing brutal realities, wondering where God is and how you're supposed to walk through it. You might even have lost a baby. You're not alone. Cracking in this way, seeing the foundation shaken under my mansion, Seeing it collapse, at least in part, has <laughs> forced me to face the reality of my shack. To confront what I actually believe about God. To confront my operative beliefs about God. For a while, even contemplating the idea that God could be at work in this 
was too difficult for me. And you might be there. And that's okay, and you're not alone. But as I've begun to be able to face this, to face into this, I think I might even be starting to see some light. See, I think, I hope, I occasionally even pray that this is when those verses from Romans 8 are true. That God works all things, all the things, all the things together for good. Because the Bible knows about suffering. Go and read it. Go and read Job. Go and read Habakkuk 3.17. Even though everything is going wrong, yet I will praise the Lord. Go and read the end of Lamentations 3. Go and read 1 Peter and 2 Corinthians 11 and Romans 8. And look at the suffering. Because it's all there in the book. The Bible knows all about things going wrong. And so does your Savior. You come to church and you sing Man of Sorrows. He knows. Beloved ones, little children, all things means what it says. It means a diagnosis of achalasia. It means the beatings and the shipwrecks and the stonings that Paul, who wrote those words, suffered as he wrote that all things work together for good. It means the experience of Tamar when she disguises herself as a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law to make a bid for justice. And it means as she unwittingly makes a way for Jesus. It means the utter abandonment and death of Jesus Christ who launches God headlong into the cracks because he's committed to meeting you there. God's perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. But it doesn't say that he does this by taking away everything that makes you afraid. In fact... Matthew's gospel is not that gospel. Matthew's gospel is all about Emmanuel. Chapter 1, verse 23. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew's gospel is the gospel that tells you that God is with you. God is with you. This is how grace works. It comes to surprising people in surprising places, in surprising ways. It comes to you disguised as your own life, even when your own life is cracking and breaking and falling apart because the light of the world goes looking for cracks. The light of the world goes looking for cracks to meet you there. And he binds up the brokenhearted. And he tells you not to fear because he's called you by name. And it won't overwhelm you because he's walking with you. And it won't overwhelm you even if you don't come through it because the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he loves you like death in reverse. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him will live even though they die. This God, 
the God who sees me, El Roy, he steps into time to meet you and me in the light and momentary troubles that we know by the name of pain. And light flickers through the crack. Have you been coming to church for so long that you've forgotten that death is where the life is? Because I think that I have. In the middle of this argument with his friends, Job, about God and suffering, Job pauses for a minute and says, I flipping hope you're writing this down. Because you need to remember this. Because I'm in the middle of this right now, but I know that one day, one day, one day, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me for that moment. How my heart yearns within me for that moment. How my heart yearns within me for the moment when I see God in my flesh. Somehow, even though it's not a perfect sacrifice, it's a broken offering. See, maybe, maybe, can you believe I thought I might make it through this without crying? Maybe, if you and I can let him, if you and I can accept grace in this surprising place of our pain, Maybe God wants to shine through those cracks and onto other people. Maybe, just maybe, this is how you can arise and shine his glory. Maybe you and me can become a city on a hill. Maybe, maybe this is actually how you follow Jesus. You offer your broken body to God and you let him shine through your cracks into a hurting world. Come on, church. Die so that Jesus may live. What have you got to lose? What have you got that you'd rather hold on to? Jesus plus what equals satisfaction? What is your plus? Die so that Jesus might live. Suffering and pain and death are inevitable. I'm sorry if that was news to you. So you might as well meet Jesus there. Because the cracks, the little pains and sufferings, the light and momentary troubles, the deaths and the griefs and the traumas, the where the light gets in. That's what Christianity has, which is unique. They've got a God that meets you there. This is why Jesus dies. So that in the cracking, the breaking, the death, there he is. There is nowhere beyond his grace. Matthew starts his story by bringing out these terrible stories of violence and saying, somehow Jesus comes through that. You haven't got anything that he can't reach. You haven't, got, you haven't been through anything that he can't find you in. Neither have I. It's just really hard to believe it some days. There's nowhere beyond his grace. There's nowhere that's too surprising because he is writing a better, more beautiful story than you've yet dared to dream. And all the sad things one day are going to come untrue. And in my flesh, I'm going to see God. 
But your life is not your own. Forget your perfect offering. It's cracking everything. Martin Luther talks about sin, and he talks about it like being wrapped in on yourself, and the kind of the shape, I don't know how well you can see this, I'll do it with both hands. It's a little bit like a snail shell, so it's wrapped in on itself. And what they don't always tell you when they talk about sin like this is that Luther, Luther's theory is that the key way that God draws you out of this is by squishing it so that you have to cry out. See, pain and praise can authentically coexist. And you can come to church and tell your soul to wake up and praise the Lord because you have to reach out to someone and you need to believe that God's going to be there in this crack. That's how I praise <laughs> Cry out in pain and the Psalms show you that pain and praise live together. And you tell your soul to wake up and praise the Lord because he is here in the middle. There's a crack in everything. Forget being a perfect offering. That's not what church is for. That's not why you're here. Come as you are. Come not because you're good, but because you are loved. Come, sow your body to your maker and your heart to your savior and let him use you as he wills. Come with your broken body, your broken heart, your broken life because his body was broken for you. Come, not because you managed to take hold of Christ, but because he comes to take hold of you. Come because nothing, no thing, nothing, and separate you from the love of God.